Jesus gives a teaching in Matthew 19, and the disciples' reaction, he's going to talk about divorce and marriage and adultery, and the disciples' reaction, this is our key verse, is they say, well, maybe it'd be better if we just didn't get married at all. Yeah, so we're going to pray, and this is my challenge for you today, all right? I want you to not leave, okay? Like, don't pretend you have to go to the bathroom and just leave church, all right? Uh, This is going to be one of those teachings where Jesus grabs you by the shoulders and tells you something that you don't want to hear, that your pastor actually doesn't want to preach, but we're going to read the whole Bible and preach the whole thing because we think God's more right than we are. So let's pray, all right? I'm going to pray mostly for myself. You can do whatever you want right now. God, we submit ourselves to your word. We submit ourselves to the teaching of Scripture, and we declare uh, openly that uh, we desire to follow Jesus. And uh, we desire to follow Jesus when it goes against the norms of our culture, when it goes against the norms that we want, and uh, when it makes us wildly uncomfortable and makes us wish that, you know, James didn't say we can't leave. God, speak to our hearts and allow us to experience your love and your grace and your hope this morning. Amen. We're going to uh, go through this a bit in kind of three parts. And if you have a Bible or you read it on your app, it's Matthew chapter 19. Um, And I want to read through the story and then sit in the moment for a second. And then uh, after we're done, like looking at the what happened in the moments, we want to talk about what the teaching is that Jesus is actually giving, because there's some cultural transitions that happen with marriage and divorce. Uh, and then I want to talk about um, where we go from here, what we do with the thing that I tell you this morning, all right? Jesus is speaking, so you know, to a a largely Jewish audience in this. Verse 1 says, Now that when Jesus had finished these these sayings, uh, he went away from Galilee, which is where Jesus was mostly from, and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan River, and a large crowd followed him, and he healed them there. This would be a population that was largely Jewish, largely knew God, knew the law, understood things. In their culture, marriage was kind of a given. There's some evidences that Caesar Augustus would fine widows if they didn't get remarried within two years. All right, so like your uh, spouse passes away, uh, you have two years to hook that thing back up, or you're going to have to pay extra tax, you know, which I don't know, that, is that a crass way to say that? Uh, you need to uh, understand that in their culture, marriage was male-dominated. So if you were getting divorced, it was because the man said you were getting divorced, all right? And the Pharisees question here, so you know, the Pharisees come to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, in Deuteronomy 24, it actually talks about why and Moses, who was the lawgiver in the, when Deuteronomy was being written, allowed for divorce to happen. And the Bible actually says, you can look it up, if the husband finds any indecency in her. And so the debate is, what is indecency? And there were different rabbis or teachers who would say different things. And the one rabbi would say indecency would be, uh, he would use a, a word that would describe sexual immorality. If sexual immorality is found in your wife, uh, then you can divorce her. Then there were other ones who said, if she brings a dish to the dinner table that you find unfavorable, and you think that's bad, watch this. The third one 
This is a real rabbi, no joke. His name is like Akib or Aki. He said, if you find someone fairer, then you found something indecent in your life. So there's this large uh, gap between the different translations or understandings of when Moses says that he would permit divorce for the men of Israel, the Jewish men, in the case of finding indecency. And so they asked Jesus this question, but they're asking Jesus to trap him or to test him. And here's Jesus' answer. He answered, verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is his answer. So they say to him, Then, they said to him, the Pharisees again, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, so you know, the man would write the certificate of divorce for his wife. For whatever reason, he would write it down, you're divorced, here you go, goodbye. Which actually, culturally, would be a step forward because the woman in their culture would have no rights. And the man, if he didn't have to write that certificate of divorce, could just lock her out and not have to do anything about it. And she would be kind of in this societal limbo. And so this is actually protecting the vulnerable party in a marriage in the ancient Near East. But Jesus said, here's the answer. Moses permits divorce or commands one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So uh, Jesus says to the people, whoever divorces his wife, and in the culture, the wife would not generally divorce the husband except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So Jesus puts himself somewhere on the timeline or on the number line of the interpretation of indecency in Deuteronomy 24. The disciples answer, and this, if you're a like, young, uh, young man, this might be your life first. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Like, if you're thinking of getting a tattoo, all right, uh, <laughs> That's bad, isn't it? But he said to him, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs, and if you don't know a eunuch uh, in their culture would be someone who is uh, castrated. Um, and, And so he uses the word here, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. So they have some kind of genital defect. And there are eunuchs who have made, been made eunuchs by men. And if you were a man that served in a royal court and served a woman, they could make you a eunuch so that you couldn't impregnate the royal. And there are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs. And he's not referring to people who castrate themselves. He's talking about people who choose chastity for their life. Made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. 
And then Jesus says this, then the children were, sorry, then the children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for such belongs to the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Now, Jesus gives this teaching. And if divorce has been a part of your story or been a part of the story of someone that you're close to or that you love, somewhere, someone has quoted to you the Old Testament verse that says God hates divorce. And we believe that the Bible is true. And so we believe that God actually hates divorce. And if you were to talk to someone who's been through divorce or going through divorce or is close friends to someone, I bet if you ask them, they hate divorce too. I don't know anyone who says, you know what I love? I love divorce. Maybe like a crooked divorce lawyer or something. But if you're a crooked divorce lawyer, that was meant to be offensive. (laughs) The Bible doesn't teach that God hates divorced people. Okay? Because sometimes that verse is presented in a way that says God hates people who get divorced. And the Bible never actually says that. The Bible actually, uh, if you can look at, when, when it teaches this, right? It says, um, Jesus says these words, uh, anyone, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. This is a wildly harsh teaching. And we would say, and the way we translate this, or the way I translate this, or people who would disagree with me, would be that Jesus would infer this also for a woman in our culture because women can divorce men that a a woman who divorces a man for anything except sexual immorality and remarries commits adultery. And I actually have seen people, like like this is from books, like there are people who can convince people to publish their ideas in books that would say when you get divorced, you need to wait till the other person commits adultery first. So after you're divorced or separated or it's ended, once the other person has sexual relations with someone else, then you're free. And so, and which takes this and actually turns it into some kind of legalistic law code where we're trying to uh, fit through these hoops so that we somehow think we're acceptable to Jesus. So let's talk about adultery. When uh, Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, because you might be here, So let me back up. And this might be your story. And I just said to you, you have committed adultery. And one of the most awkward moments in my entire life happened. I was a summer camp counselor when I was high school students. And a kid read this verse and said, James, so uh, my mom was divorced and then remarried. Is she an adulterer? And mom, like, went to church and, like, was part of the church leadership And I said, well, lights out. (laughs) I was young, and that was actually the best answer I could give. Like, actually the best answer I could give. But there is this, uh, like, tension all of a sudden that I introduced to your life. That if this is part of your story, let me back up and talk about this, okay? Because what do I do if, according to this scripture, 
James, you just said that I did adultery. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. And this is Jesus' words. I say to you, not my words, Jesus says to you that any man that looks at a woman with lust in his heart is guilty of committing adultery. And so if I just told you that Jesus said you committed adultery, what you should do is, number one, sit here among all the other adulterers. Because anyone who has looked at another person at any point in their life and had a lustful thought is guilty of adultery. And so before you go, ah, good thing I'm not an adulterer, before you back up and say, oh, good, this sermon, this is one of those sermons James does for those people. Basically, you're an adulterer. Not according to me, according to the Bible that you believe and are committed to following. And so you can introduce yourself that way. My name is James. God calls me an adulterer. If you find yourself in front of Jesus and your status is adultery, which we've just established the majority of us are, then we look in the scripture for when Jesus interacts with people who are adulterers, which in John chapter 8 is the story of the woman who is caught in adultery and brought before Jesus. And there's a bunch of condemners, and they say, the Bible says, we throw rocks at her till she dies. What they missed is the Bible says, throw rocks at the guy too. And if she was caught in adultery, you could probably find that guy, all right? But they bring the woman, and they're going to throw rocks at the woman. The Bible says Jesus bends down and starts writing in the sand, which is like the most like uh, macho thing that I think Jesus could do. Like he doesn't respond, he just starts writing something. And there's all these cool things that we can imagine Jesus is writing, like the sins of the people or something. Who knows what he's writing? He could just be writing like cuss words, you know, like I am going to you, you know, and, and like, uh, I mean, of course he didn't do that, right? But, but there is this kind of, Jesus does this. And then he stands up and says, those of you who are without sin, why don't you start? And he backs up. And the woman who's caught in adultery, and caught in adultery means she's not wearing a lot of clothes, all right? Like maybe she grabbed a bed sheet on the way out, and Jesus is standing by her and said, if you haven't sinned, let's get this thing started. And the Bible says that the condemner is all left, and Jesus walks up to this woman who's caught in adultery, and he does not condemn her. But he does stand beside her and in their culture to talk to the woman who you're not like any woman that you're not married to is pretty scandalous and so Jesus apparently decides to be scandalous and he stands next to her and says like he doesn't just wash it away like all right let's just ignore that he actually says hey uh that was sin like what you just did that adultery thing that's sin. That's sin against God. That's sin against yourself. That's sin. Let's not, let's not sin anymore. Let's, uh, let's do a new life where we don't do that sin, where we don't sin. Let's start over. Let's wipe that clean. Just 
blank slate. Let's move forward from here because that, I don't think that's, that's not God's best. We often like to ignore what Jesus did, right? We like to go over here where there's, oh, let me back up. I'm going to start talking about what I want to say, and I want to just talk about what the Bible says first. What Jesus did was take what they interpreted as a command in Deuteronomy 24 and actually make divorce optional. So you know this, okay? Under the Torah law, if, you, if your wife was caught in adultery, divorce was mandatory. Under Jesus, he says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. When he says whoever in their languages, he's actually allowing that your spouse may commit adultery and you don't have to divorce them. Jesus actually creates this allowance for reconciliation and healing to happen. Jesus takes the sin that if, if you imagine sin in a marriage, this ranks pretty high. And he says, divorce might happen because of this. But divorce might not happen because of this. We might heal through this. We might come out of this still together. Because the Bible teaches, and this is Jesus teaching, that, uh, this is verse 6, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So the Bible actually teaches in marriage there's something that you do and something that he or she does and saying your vows and getting married. And then there's something that God does. If you have ever been to your own wedding, if, like if you're, oh my gosh, that was the worst <laughs> sentence in history. If you can remember your wedding and you stood there, good night. And you stood there, it's lights out, let's go, right? <laughs> but you stood there, and you said your vows, and you did that thing, and then there was like a, a pastor or a priest or a judge or something that, that said, therefore, with the authority, blah, 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 I do this. In that, and the Bible doesn't say this just for Christians, in that, God did something to make two into one. And Jesus actually, when they bring divorce to Jesus, Jesus actually says, how easy do you think it is to undo what God has done? To take this two and make them separate again. Because God did something. We had uh, friends, my wife and I at one point, that uh, she was divorced and remarried, and her husband uh, was remarried, and, and she talked about her husband's new wife as her husband was her ex-husband, and that was her ex-wife. Because whether she wanted to or not, there was a connection, and there would be for the rest of her life, and so therefore there was this connection to this other wife of her ex as well. And she just lived it. This is the words that she used to describe something that the Bible teaches. And so when we talk about marriage, 
and we talk about divorce and we talk about adultery and we see Jesus standing next to the woman who was caught in adultery. Well, so you know, like that was a scandalous place for Jesus to be and it's a really awkward place for us to be. And we tend to try to avoid awkwardness. That's just, I don't know why. But we move over here and we will uh, join the condemners, right? And so we like ostracize, we push out, we build whole faith communities where if you're divorced, you're pushed out. Or I was a part of a denomination once that if divorce is part of your story, it doesn't matter how it's a part of your story. Like if you were divorced before you became a Christian, you cannot be a pastor, period. That's not true in our denomination, but I was a part of that one time. I'm not anymore. I have a problem with that. But um, when we just say what that is too messy, the Bible is too condemning, no. And there's this like weird shunning that happens. But then on the other end, because we think that shunning is bad, we line up over here and we just kind of ignore it. Because what God really wants is you to be happy, and now you're happy and happy. Let's say happy more times and, and try to pretend that badness isn't there, all right? Happy, all right? And so instead of, like, we're not the condemners, but we're actually going to try to, like, ignore this. Like, this page might rip out of my Bible accidentally one time, and I'm just going to kind of, uh, that's too much, Instead of just entering into the awkwardness and the life and the teachings of Jesus, if we're going to be committed to the whole Word of God and believe that everything that Jesus taught was true and would bring about God's best for us, then this is part of that entering in. Now, I'm going way over time, and so I apologize. You might need to text people and tell them you're going to be late for lunch. Um, I want to end, so there's what Jesus said, and now here's what I say, all right? So this, so you know, if we sit down and you want to talk to me about your marriage or you talk to me about a second marriage or something like that or your fourth marriage, and uh, there is, um, we want to talk about this. I want to uh, say a few things, four things, uh, and this is kind of number zero before the three things. Marriage might not be uh, this. Some of you might hear this and yell amen. Don't yell amen. Marriage might not be primarily about you being happy. You weren't supposed to. All right, if you yelled that, we're going to have an appointment this week. (laughs) Marriage, like, I am insanely happy in my marriage, and I imagine at some point you are as well. But marriage, if you read the Scripture, there's more going on so that your happiness isn't primary. In fact, I would say that God in general is doing more in the world than making sure you're happy. I would say that when God brings two together, and when I do weddings, I talk about this almost every time, It is an image and a reminder of the permanency of God's love for us. I will be married to my wife forever until we die. Not just for my happiness, not just because everybody hates divorce, divorce sucks. 
But because it's a picture on earth of God's commitment to me and God's commitment to humanity in general. And so when I am married, it's not just an opportunity for me to be happy or to be able to stare at the prettiest girl I could find and it not be creepy, right? But it actually, it actually creates that your marriage isn't for you, the gospel is for you, and your marriage is for the gospel. Second, whether you're divorced right now or going through a divorce or you've never been married, I want you to like hear this and maybe you need to write it down. Singleness might be, no, get rid of that. Let's cross that out. Singleness is right now God's best for you. Believing, like in our culture, we have this weird thing that says, being married is better than being single because there's this verse that says like if you burn with passion then you need to get married and we interpret that right away to mean sex because sex is this insatiable drive which is not what the Bible teaches at all. If you're single, you might be single for the rest of your life and if you believe what the scripture teaches then that's God's best for the rest of your life. Now, you might be single and you might meet someone tomorrow and get married in a couple of years. And at that time, that's now God's best for you. And so you need to trust God and love God and obey God where you're at, which is what Paul teaches in Corinthians, to believe that God has you where you are because God loves you. You are single right now because God loves you enough to die on the cross for you, for your singleness. And if you're married or you get married someday, it's because God loves you so much that he was willing to die on the cross for your marriage and yourself. Sometimes we get women who come to our church and uh, when a young single man walks in, they change where they're sitting on Sundays. Sometimes we get young single men who come into our church and they uh, hang out by the children's check-in. I uh, don't tell anyone this, but I call them hunters. They're here and they're hunting for something, right? They don't want anything that has to do with Jesus, but they want Jesus to give them something, right? And I see that. And then they, uh, hunters are good, all right? And then they uh, pounce. And uh, this is going to get as rude as it can, and they devour, and, uh, and then they come to me and say, do our wedding. And I say, well, let's take some time and walk through this slowly, especially hunters who have been previously married, because I do marriage counseling with the vast 99%, uh, the ones that I haven't done marriage counseling. I've set them up for marriage counseling with other people. Uh, just because of different situations, but I do marriage counseling, and I'll say, here's the process that's going to get married. It's going to take you months and months, you know, like, and, and they will say, I've been married already. I don't need that, and I'm like, no, you just showed that you're really bad at this. <laughs> you need this. That's a bad way to say that, but when they say that to me, it's like shocking uh, because they're hunting, because they're not willing to love God in their singleness. You catch that? 
And then there's other people that aren't willing to love God in their marriedness, which is a whole other subject. Second thing. Oh, let me back up. So, you know, Christianity is the first of the major world religions to actually value singleness. And in very early Christianity, when there would be a widow, they wouldn't encourage her to get married because her singleness was a statement to the world around them. And, and usually there were widows who were women. If it was a man, he could work and get a job, but there was no way for a woman in the very early church in the ancient Near East to be able to be a participating member of society because they weren't allowed to work. Uh, and so, but the community would provide for the widows and the widows would serve in the church and their singleness was actually a statement about their faith and about their God to the world that had never been made before, all right? So if you are single and you're following Jesus, you're part of this radical movement that Christianity initiated that no one had ever done before, all right? And I apologize because a lot of time in church is spent going, oh, married, 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 right? Because a lot of the married people aren't good at it and they need that, all right? But you need to know if you're single. Married people, you just ignore that. You're awesome. But if you're single, you need to know that you're part of something that Jesus initiated, which is different from the rest of the world. All right. I'm passionate about that. Uh, uh, next. God wants to forgive you all the time. Maybe you got divorced and you remarried and it wasn't for sexual immorality and you remarried and so according to the scripture you committed adultery. The Bible doesn't say you're perpetually committing adultery but you committed adultery. And some of you are like maybe in a relationship now and you're like man we should have got married last week before James said all this crap, right? Um, but because we're going to have this conversation when you come to me and talk. But there's this, uh, not because I want to, but because the Bible teaches it and we need to submit ourselves to what the Scripture teaches. And so when we then move into this area where we're like, wow, like I, maybe I didn't even know, <laughs> but maybe you did know. Maybe you did, but you kind of ignored that and figured you could ask for forgiveness later. What I want you to know that not knowing and sinning is bad. Knowing and willfully sinning, worse. But all of that, God wants to forgive and come beside you and say, that was a mess. Let's move forward. The Bible doesn't teach if you're in that second marriage, now you need to end that second marriage. Sorry, this is a, no, don't start, okay. Because what if you're in your third or fourth, then which one are you supposed to go back to, right? Like you're just... The Bible teaches where you are is good because God loves you and has a plan for you where you are. So if you find, according to the Scripture, that what we just talked about means somewhere in your life you committed adultery, maybe you willfully sinned, maybe you unintentionally sinned, I want you to know God doesn't hate you. God comes to you with an attitude of forgiveness, standing beside you, not standing against you. Last. Divorce actually goes beyond the two people who are divorced because God does something. I think this is why the guy who wrote Matthew actually wrote this thing about the children right afterwards where Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Because if we're going to talk about a marriage and divorce, then right away we need to talk about the kids. And we don't just talk about marriage and divorce in relation to your kids, but to your kids as kids and your kids' as friends, and your friends, and this larger community. 
Because divorce, if it happens in your life, isn't something that just happens in your life. It actually extends beyond you because your marriage is part of a community because your marriage is part of sharing the gospel. And so there's been this break and this doubt and this wonder. I was at that wedding and I believed in it. And I don't know what happened. And there's a little bit of pain there. Even though I'm not part of what's happened or what went on. And my pain is minuscule compared to the pain of the people who are actually going through divorce. But there's this ripple effect that happens. And maybe moving forward, like maybe if you look at our generations, like if you're an adult here, and I'm not even talking about society in general, I'm talking about the Christians, the people who follow Jesus. We have generally been very poor at being married. Like we rushed into it because, you know, what if the rapture came and I was a virgin? I need to find the first person I can. And then if you, you're probably not worried about that. But I remember when I was worried about that. Now I don't even believe in rapture, so I could, didn't have to worry about that. But you, we have these Christian kids getting married when they're really young because they think that like sex drive is this insatiable thing and they have a misunderstanding because they're not biblically informed. They spend too much time watching TV and not enough time reading their scripture. And we end up we have taken, like generationally, we have taken marriage and just made a mess of it. And I wonder, wouldn't it be amazing if we could pray and lean into the rising generations? And maybe, like, um, there's a pastor named Andy Stanley. He uses the word steward marriage. What if we stewarded marriage better for the people behind us? What if the Christians witness to the world was the permanency of their marriages. Because when we all get in line and go on a march and we protest what somebody is doing with marriage, generally this is a hot-button issue in our culture, it is radically easy to point back at us because we're fighting for this thing that we haven't really taken care of which isn't something where I'm trying to induce more guilt on you. I hope you're catching that. Let me back up and say that Jesus is standing beside you, not pointing fingers at you and saying, that was bad. Like, you didn't like that. I didn't like that. Now let's move forward. And what if part of Jesus moving us forward is helping and aiding rising generations to understand the gospelness of their marriages? So when I see couples like Ermin and Irma Johnson who were married for, I don't know, 80 years. They lived here in Albany. They're members of South Albany Community Church, which was the church that started this church. I don't think, oh, that's so romantic, old people holding hands. I think that's so amazing because of the permanency of God's love. Because I bet you at some point they had a day where they didn't get along. Maybe not those two, but in my life and in your life, there's going to be a day. And God forbid, in your life and in your marriage, 
if you are married or you ever will be married or you ever will be remarried, there's going to be a time when it's, you're going to respond like the disciples and say, man, if I knew this, maybe it would have been better to not get married at all. And what if we prayed for and leaned into and helped rising generations to be married? And marriage isn't hard because you're living with another person. Marriage is hard because that other person is living with you. Like, (laughs) marriage is hard because there's someone who is actually going to point out that you're not perfect. This is why being single is pretty awesome. (laughs) But there is this, there is this, I think, need, and I'm speaking primarily to young people who are here, like if you're in high school or college and you're thinking, I want to get married someday, I really want to help you be married for your whole life because God is going to take two and make one and it's a reminder of the most beautiful thing that God ever did. I'm going to pray and then we're going to worship like we normally do, but I have kind of a special request for you. This is maybe not for you, but maybe for someone in your row or someone sitting around you. One of those Sundays where it's just like, um, it's like open heart surgery. And some people who are here might need some space and might need to take a breath. It might need, um, or would be blessed by your continuing to participate in worship. I went way too long, but come back next week. It'll be twice as long. So, but, but I really believe that God works and heals and renews. This is what Jesus says in Revelation, that he makes all things new. And there might be someone around you that if you get up and leave or just distracting, you're actually interrupting what God might be doing in their life. So I'm going to ask you just to stay. You might be late for whatever thing you're going to. Text them, all right? Uh, If you need to go, I'm sure everyone will be forgiving because we have to. But there is this. But there is, I think, a sacredness to what might be happening in your life or what God has been doing in your life in the last 45 minutes, or it might be the person sitting behind you or the person in your row. And as we're worshiping, I want to ask that you would join in the worship in a way that prays that we can take marriage and make it all that it can be. Not that we would be happier, but that it would be a declaration to the world of God's role in our life. Maybe not your marriage but marriage in general. So I'm going to pray really short. The band will come up, and then we'll sing together, and I'll ask you to kind of hang out and be here. Let's stand. Uh, Let's stand now. Lord, um, we just uh, ask humbly that you would draw us close to yourself. Those of us who are here, And when we talk about marriage and divorce and adultery, it uh, brings a lot of stuff to the surface. We ask that you would uh, embrace them in these moments 
She would stand next to them like you stood next to that woman caught in adultery and say, yeah, that sucked. I agree. But let's, let's move forward. God, for those who are young and are here, I pray that as we're worshiping you, that you would impress upon them the great things that you want in their life. That those of us who are married here, Lord, would experience your grace in our marriages, your grace to make up the gap that exists because we are fall so far short of being Christ-like. May your grace move in our marriages for those who are single. God, for those who have been single for a long time. God, for those who have been single for a short time. I want to pray that you would love them in their singleness to such an extreme that they can know your presence. In these moments, may you live here in among us as we worship you. Amen.